If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Will you bow your heads with me? O Holy One, the mass grave containing the remains of 215 native children on the grounds of what was the Kamloops Indian Residential School is being reported as a discovery, as if it was a surprise. But it wasn't an unexpected find. Someone always knew. Someone's separated the families, someone's did the beating, someone's did the molesting, someone's withheld food, someone's dumped the bodies, someone's looked the other way. This is a sin so grievous that we cannot imagine sitting in silence for even one second per child. 215 seconds of silence? That's over three and a half minutes. The silence stretches before us like a chasm and it frightens us for it gives us time to think about how we are those someones, by how we avert our eyes, how we keep quiet, how we act as if there is such a thing as someone else's child. We cannot ask forgiveness without first confessing and repenting, and we know that we are not there yet. Fix our eyes and our hearts on this pain and suffering, Holy One, so that we might not continue to add to the number of someones who looked the other way. We pray in the name of Jesus, who was also murdered and put in an unmarked grave. Amen. This morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, 
come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. It would be easy to blame it on the pandemic, which required isolation and separation, avoiding even the smallest gatherings for months and months, which turned into over a year. But it's not exactly fair to blame it on the pandemic. We've been hearing about division and disconnection in our world for a very long time. We have all heard it said that the world is more divided than ever, and America has never been more polarized than it is today. Studies at the Pew Research Center over the last few years reveal increasingly stark disagreements on the economy, racial justice, climate change, law enforcement, international engagement, the list goes on. A month before the 2020 election, roughly eight in 10 registered voters, both Democrats and Republicans, said that their differences with the other side were about core American values. And roughly nine in 10 worried that a victory by the other side would lead to lasting harm to the United States. While this kind of division is happening in many countries, apparently America is exceptional at discord and disagreement. 77% of Americans said the country was now more divided than before the pandemic, as compared with a median of 47% among 13 other nations that were surveyed. Why are we like this? Michael Dimmick and Rachel Wyke explain that while polarizing pressures of partisan media, social media, and even deeply rooted cultural, historical, and regional divides are hardly unique in America, by comparison, America's relatively rigid two-party electoral system stands apart by collapsing a wide range of legitimate social and political debates into a singular battle that can make our differences appear even larger than they may actually be. 
And when the balance of support for these political parties is close enough for either to gain near whole electoral advantage, as it has been in the US for more than quarter of a century, the competition between the two sides becomes cutthroat and politics begins to feel zero sum where one side's gain is inherently the other side's loss. Finding common cause, even to fight a common enemy in the public health and economic threat posed by the coronavirus, has eluded us. Over time, these battles result in nearly all societal tensions becoming consolidated in two competing camps. As Ezra Klein and other writers have noted, divisions between the two parties have intensified over time as various types of identities have been stacked on top of people's partisan identities. Race, religion, and ideology now align with partisan identity in ways that they often didn't in bygone eras when the two parties were relatively heterogeneous coalitions. In their study of polarizations across nations, Thomas Carruthers and Andrew O'Donohue argue that polarization runs particularly deep in the US in part because it is especially multifaceted. According to Carruthers and O'Donohue, a powerful alignment of ideology, race, and religion renders America's divisions unusually en un encompassing and profound. It is hard to find another example of polarization in the world that fuses all three major types of identity divisions in a similar way. This is not to make us nostalgic for those bygone eras when things were supposedly less polarized. Pretending that life was better in the 1950s and 1960s is usually the illusion of white people. For those eras were characterized by structural injustice that kept many voices, particularly those of non-white Americans, out of the political arena. And that time was hardly less violent or destabilized. It was a period that was arguably defined by assassinations. So really the question is, what are we going to do about it? Perhaps you are thinking that church is not the most obvious place to clean out the wound and start the healing process, but our sacred stories tell us otherwise. The story of Jesus at its most basic level is a story of relationships, of conversation, of people saying to one another, come and see, instead of making assumptions and carrying on with the status quo. At first glance, it seems like everybody in this text already knows who Jesus is. In the passage we read, Jesus is called Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, the one Moses and the prophets wrote about, son of Joseph, a Nazarene, son of God, and King of Israel. Just in the first chapter. This is not a bad start. Let me tell you, preachers have been called worse. It's tempting to tell Jesus, just go with it, brother, lean in. Things take a turn in a few years. You need to enjoy this while you can. And yet, and yet Jesus doesn't answer to any of those titles or labels or claims. Did you notice? Jesus lets people call him what they call him, but doesn't actually affirm what they call him. This is, in and of itself, worthy of a sermon. This story 
is one of our first clues that Jesus' ministry is different, that it is not built on hierarchy, deification, or ego, but on love with a capital L. This story is also one of the first clues that Jesus is going to be really annoying. By annoying, I mean that he isn't going to make it easy for us. Perhaps you have never heard a preacher admit that they think Jesus is annoying, but welcome. (laughs) Jesus is annoying. He is constantly asking us to get uncomfortable, to stretch ourselves, to be honest, to confess, to show up for one another, to show up for God. This is, of course, what makes him so compelling, the consistency, the authenticity, the realness And these guys in our text, the the two that start following him, they were obviously looking for something or someone to hitch their wagons to. But Jesus doesn't just say, what a coincidence, I'm looking for some disciples. And while y'all aren't as tall as I expected, no one else is really lining up, so come on. No. Jesus notices that he's being tailed by two of John's disciples, and he asks them a question. What are you looking for? And they answer with a question that includes what they are really looking for. They are looking for a rabbi, a teacher, and we know the feeling. So many of us are looking for our own personal gurus, and we're willing to take it in the form of a yoga instructor, a televangelist, a political pundit. These two disciples ask where Jesus is staying, in part because they have some idea that maybe, maybe they need to know a little bit more about this guy. They need to know where he is from in order to know him. Instead of giving them a street address, Jesus invites them to get curious. Come and you will see, he says, the Greek word for see in this context is Harao, which literally means to know, to perceive, to understand. Come and you will understand me, Jesus says. It is an invitation to go beyond surface level. Isn't the weather nice? Small talk. To come and see is to move, to change one's position in order to see things from a different perspective. And inevitably, we know that when we change our point of view, we change our point of view. Come and see if I am indeed what you are looking for, if I am a teacher, if I am a child of God, if I say, if I am who they say I am, who you think I am. And to their credit, these two men take him up on the offer They not only go with him, but they stay around to hear his stories. They remained with him that day, the text says. They were willing to travel to get to know where Jesus was from, both literally and by listening to his stories and experiences. And that reveals a willingness to learn something new, as well as unlearn prior assumptions. Those prior assumptions are on full display a few verses later when Nathanael asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, Nathanael is no Mr. Congeniality here. But Nazareth is at the heart 
of Galilee, Professor Thomas Slater explains. It, it's a region populated by Jews and Gentiles from several ethnicities. Positively, it could be said that it was a diverse region. The Jewish communities, at most, constituted about 60% of the Galilean popula populace. Jewish persons in Judea looked down on their kinsmen in Galilee. Judea was over 90% Jewish. Those in Judea paid the temple tax, kept the religious requirements more rigorously, and were less likely to intermarry. In, on the other hand, Galilean Jews were less likely to pay the temple tax, more lax in regard to ritualistic traditions, and more likely to intermarry. Their Judean cousins saw Galilean Jews as less pure, if not outright impure, which is why Nathanael asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? And when Nathanael asks this, those who had taken up Jesus' invitation to a deeper relationship well, they had figured out what a game-changer this come-and-see strategy was. So by the time Nathaniel asks his question, it isn't Jesus who invites him to come and see. It's the new disciples. It's Philip. It's Andrew. It's Peter. It's the ones who had spent enough time with Jesus to know his story and appreciate his background, which ultimately explained why this guy was hell-bent on bringing God's heaven to earth. Had Jesus not shared where he was from, had the disciples not gotten a clearer picture of what shaped Jesus, what inspired him, then there would have been no following, no shared mission. The beauty of this text is that it explains how the church, and in particular this faith community, can do something about the division and isolation and discord we know is real. The story reminds us that in order to have understanding, we need to know one another. We need to know where we are from. Only then will, will we be able to stop assuming the worst, find common ground, stop going it alone, and start being in relationship. Perhaps you have been imagining how you would answer the question, where are you from? Perhaps you are imagining how your response would help other people understand you better, how it might make them more sympathetic to your concerns, how it might explain to your neighbors why you are the way you are. Now imagine that this sermon isn't about you answering that question, but about you asking that question to someone else. Ready, break. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie senior minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only, premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page.
Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.